This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Jason Stark. I read about baseball for the Athletic. Here with my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, this is really going to be a special show because we have our good friend Sarah Langs of MLB.com on with us. And Sarah, as you know, is a rock star. We both work with her at ESPN. She's amazing. But I, I do think I need to warn you, man, with her on the show and me on the show, there will be math. <laughs> but, but I promise, uh, mostly just a lot of fun facts. Also, a lot of talk about where people like us find the fun facts and possibly what's wrong with us because we care so much about this stuff. But Oh, you're looking forward to it, right? Oh, yeah. You know, this is this is ultimate sausages made kind of show. I'm very excited. <laughs> uh, I went to an yep. event in, I think it was Boston University, and they explained how they can find people that had disappeared and all this fascinating stuff. So I feel like I'm going to get some sort of insight <laughs> like this on the madness. <laughs> okay, just try not to disappear yourself <laughs> while we're uh, doing our thing, all right? Uh, before we get to Sarah... Uh, I want to make sure you know, Doug, that I am now officially a baseball influencer. Uh, as you know, MLB and the Atlantic League announced last week they're trying out some stuff, a couple of experimental rules for the season. And one of them is a rule that some people, for some reason, seem to be referring to as the Jason Stark rule. <laughs> I'm being serious about it. I like it. Now, I, I think we've talked about this before, but... This is the rule where every team gets to start the game with a DH, except when your starting pitcher comes out of the game, you lose your DH. And, you know, this rule, Doug, is actually pretty creative. It's one of those ideas that gets more interesting the more you think about it. Uh, you know, the idea is to try to create incentive for teams to leave their starting pitcher in the game longer in the hope that maybe it'll restore the luster of the starting pitcher in the sport. Uh, so, first off, true confession for me, I did not invent this rule. It's been kicked around behind the scenes for a couple of years. I just caught wind of it and wrote about it. But I did come up with a name for the rule called the double hook. And now, like, this is really incredible to me. They're actually using my name <laughs> as the official name, the double hook. Because the initials are D-H. I'm sure you get this. So, so Doug, what, what do you think? Do you have newfound admiration for me now <laughs> since after all these years, we finally found somebody who would actually listen to one of my <laughs> harebrained ideas? 
Well, this actually puts the Hall of Fame uh, enshrinement slash honoring <laughs> into second place. This this knocks it out of the top spot, right? Uh, because yeah, you're just like part of the fabric of the game. I'm I'm rooting for this a hundred percent to be in Major League Baseball, so that you are now now it's like the Stark rules and the Starkville, and of course we have to have an episode dedicated to. Uh, a ceremony to declare this formal. That That's where we got to go with this. We can't lose this opportunity. Uh, but I think it's a great idea. I, I, I really think it's a great idea. And I've worked, uh, you know, interesting in Connecticut, I've worked a lot on policy, had laws passed, all kinds of things. I know it sounds like yeah, a tangent. Stuff that actually matters. Yes. But this is, yeah, this is actually next level. Uh, you know, we're talking constitutional <laughs> type changes. But, uh, you know, but what's what's cool about it is there's times where you run out of ways to say, oh, let's just go back to what is the sort of hallowed time of the game. You have to kind of get creative to create incentives or sometimes disincentives to make things happen. And I'm glad it's, there's some recognition that we have to make some reason why you want to get back to starters going deeper into the game. And, and yes, they don't have to, but there's a cost associated with it. So, you know, th- those are... I think it's just great. I think it comes up with a lot of. So I don't know if you want to break it down in further detail. I'd like to hear. Well, I mean, just I just do. You, do you think it's going to work, or is will it be a disaster full of unintended consequences? Well, I mean, I've I you know I'm just reading your column about the unintended, the idea that okay, if you're a team that's behind and your pitcher's getting beat up, now <clears throat> the way you'd normally come back is obviously scoring runs. Now you're taking your probably best hitter. <laughs> out of the lineup but guess what like that's your issue like i think on on top of that is you know i you know i did the giants reds game the other day and gabe kapler had six pinch hitters in nine innings so that's bananas but what's interesting about that is maybe you think differently about how you construct your lineup and get back to where there's not like 14 pitchers and 12 position players you start to flip it yeah so i think that's another effect of creating more incentive to just have more offensive-minded players, which to me is part of the excitement that's getting lost. You have guys that are specialists off the bench, lefties, righties. You can pinch hit, pinch run. You might have some versatility in your offense and how to create create offenses, uh, create runs. Uh, I, you know, so I don't know. I think that's that's a cool factor. So, you know, hey, you want you want your DH, you run your guy out there, and and if you take him out and you bring in a million a cavalcade of relievers, then just have a whole bunch of pinch hitters ready. And maybe you have one less, two less relievers to carry. You know, I, I say it accomplishes that yeah. too. Right, that's the thing. I'm, I'm Like, it would have a lot of ripple effects that I don't know people have thought about. It would completely, it would completely change roster construction because just for the reason you just described, if you're keeping your starters in the game longer then you don't need to carry 13 or 14 pitchers. And then you do have more pinch hit options. And then you can keep that Matt Stairs kind of whopper, you know, that soft, slow pitch softball guy on the end of your bench. And you, you have him for the late innings. So you do have that. You'd also be grooming your pitchers, your starting pitchers, to go deeper into games because you would need that. Uh, there'd be real incentive to do that. Like that, That's an important part of the entertainment of baseball that we're losing. And so it's got all that going for it. But I have to admit that there is a flaw that could be potentially a fatal flaw. And that is, all right, Nelson Cruz is your DH. Mm -hmm. And now 
Like, no, you're still figuring that starters wouldn't go nine a whole lot. So you'd never have Nelson Cruz <laughs> be available to bat late in the game. Like, the legend of Big Poppy was all those big at-bats in the ninth inning, the tenth inning, eleventh inning. And under, if you had this role, would he ever even still be in the game? Uh, you Like, you have the option of moving him into the field if you want to keep his bat in the game, If you you know, if he's coming up next inning. But would he ever be around in the late innings, the extra innings? That, like that, that does trouble me. But we'll have to see how it goes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. You have, Whatever. you know, you have the Lenny Harris's of the world, the Rusty Stobbs of the world. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's true. Nelson Cruz, these guys are done. First of all, the Rays just had a panic attack. The Tampa Bay Rays just passed out. Their whole front office <laughs> is like laying opener. in the parking lot right now because opener, yeah, opener dead. I mean, opener. You got one inning and that's it. But I think what is interesting is you you do have just like just like the relievers became so specialized and like lefty righty loogie all these things maybe you have your hitters are going to be that you're going to have guys say okay I'm going to bring this guy in you need a runner you need contact guy you need it will give different looks and look the game is always five step aheads of the policies <laughs> so they're going to find ways <laughs> to do all kind of crazy things but uh, and I, and I'm curious about the players association too because. The DH being a job, right? A certain kind of job, and it has a certain a certainty instead of a cavalcade of pinch hitters and defenders. It probably will shift that value. Um, you know, that could be an interesting development too. Yeah, I, I mean, you don't want to know what the union thinks of this. I've asked them. <laughs> like, you know, you're a lot more enthusiastic about it than they are. Let's put it that way. But there are a lot of players who are. I mean, I've heard from them. Adam Wainwright loves this idea. Uh, Max Scherzer, like, brought it up this spring without anybody asking about it and actually called it the double hook, you know? So that if you have enough players who like it, that's how the union formulates policy theoretically but there there might be some implications on the value of certain players which would trouble them but look what one more thing on this doug before we bring in sarah langs um i've heard a lot of pushback from fans since i wrote about this in the athletic i uh, wrote about what the atlantic league is doing and why they're doing it and you know you just keep hearing from people who say don't don't change baseball ever. Uh, like I'll give you an exchange uh, with one fan. Um, okay, Friday night. I don't know if you stayed up to watch Dodgers Padres. It was amazing. And uh, the next morning, I got a tweet from somebody talking about what a great game that was. So just watch that game and explain to me why anybody would think about moving the mound back a foot. <laughs> like, these two things are linked. Um, and here's the way I responded. Uh, I love baseball. I'm sure you could vouch for that. Everybody who listens to me or reads me can vouch for the fact. I love baseball. I loved watching that game. I was up into the wee hours. My wife was not happy about it. Um, but I, I, I tried to say to him, look, you know, there were great games in the NBA once upon a time before there was a three-point line. Does that mean you should never change? Why can't a sport adapt so that it reflects the ability of the athletes playing that sport at a given time? Uh, like that, I thought that was a pretty mm-hmm. I like introspective, it. thoughtful idea. And this guy's response was, "No, <laughs> baseball should never change." So, Doug, your thoughts? 
Well, I, I, one thing I'm actually really interested in is since Rob Manfred has come into power, so to speak, has he been one of the more revolutionary, you know, commissioners in baseball history? I, I mean, I'm not talking about Jackie Robbins, obviously, but just within the rules. Yeah. I mean, he's done a lot of things. And he's the thing is, he's been responsive. You know, I remember, you know, whether you caught the ball or not, right, and control. And that was one thing early on. He's like, all right, let's get back to this. He's, he's kind of unafraid to go back to the table. And, yes, that is kind of antithetical to how generally we've perceived baseball. And I would use the word perceived intentionally because is it really always been so, you know, uh, sort of immutable, I guess, and saying, all right, we're not going to change anything. We're going to – this is just how we do things. We have a warning track. We have a running lane, <clears throat> which is terrible, by the way. And we have all these things, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, I I know that – I think you phrased it really well. There is forces that evolve and if you're doing it just because, okay, I want more Twitter followers, okay, there can be short-sighted changes. But when you have aspects of the game that make it harder to watch or just harder to digest and, and just younger fans are not embracing it, you do have to look at its survival because you don't want to you know, dig yourself such a big hole if you don't have a game left. And, and some of those changes are, are important. And look, I, I'm always worried about failing upward. You know, it's like the 10th inning magic runner that teleports onto second base. Part of it, yes, was COVID. Understandably, you don't want these 19 inning games. But part of it is what we talked about in the beginning. It's that, you know, pitchers don't go deep in games. So they're worried about blowing out their bullpen. So they don't want the games to go 17 innings. But if you have starters that are going nine innings, you don't see it the same way. So there is part of it just saying, all right, well, we blow out all our pitchers, so we can't afford to keep having these extra inning games. And, and maybe to some degree, let's talk about the mound going back. Well, if hitters had a different philosophy, instead of swinging for the fences on an 0-2 count, they actually said, hey, let me make contact. Maybe some of that is just like the cultural aspect of how players are trained and what they focus on. So, you know, there's always that balance. But what I like is you got to just try stuff. And that's what the Atlantic League and the minor league are for. They're complete guinea pigs. And so it's not this rash thing. You're going to try it and see what happens and try to make adjustments. You've got to figure out some way to counteract the effect of velocity in, a, in an age when every pitcher throws 97 and the, the rules of baseball were not handed down on a stone tablet <laughs> never to be changed or altered. Um, the other sports do this all the time. Remember, I kidded Theo. Like, nobody ever says... When they're watching a basketball game, no, this is not the game that Bob Cousy played. I'll never watch another basketball game. Nobody ever thinks that. Only in baseball do they think that. So we're just trying these things. I don't know if they're going to work. I don't know if the quote-unquote Jason Stark rule is the answer to everything. It's probably a disaster like everything else I've ever suggested. But uh, it just it's cool that they're trying stuff. And, Doug, you know what's really cool? Somebody actually listened to me. It's never happened to me in my life, including in my house. <laughs> Look, it is part of what we love about the game. We are we're a little bit rigid in baseball about our traditions. So I, I do have a great appreciation for that. I, I want the game to survive. If you just said, hey, let it go. All right, everybody takes PEDs. Everybody, like, you know, you have to come up with ways to adapt. And as you, as you mentioned so well, I think your point in the mound you know, in your column, I thought was really interesting is the average velocity 
from one distance was like 93 or something. And then at this other distance, this longer one was like 91. And it showed how the strikeouts just went down just by that change of velocity. Um, look, pitchers are also, what's different between the, the Fernando Valenzuela, you know, they pace themselves a certain way. There's no pacing to pitching. So part of the velocity is mechanics and improvement in science. But part of it is just the fact that, hey, I can just blow out and throw as hard as I want for because I'll just be out of here. And, and so I do think part of it is forcing these great athletes to rethink focusing only on power and focusing on finesse and nuance a little more. I think that also culturally will, will change some outcomes. Yeah, we could do a whole show on just on this, on pitching. Uh, we actually did kind of do a whole show on this with Theo a few weeks ago, but uh, some other time, some other time. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. All right, Doug, once again this week, we have got spectacular company. Let's welcome in our very special guest and probably my very favorite follow on all of Twitter. It's the one, the only, Sarah Langs, the brilliant writer and researcher from MLB.com. Sarah, we are so thrilled to welcome you here to Starkville. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that very kind intro. Oh, my gosh. I am honored to hear that from you, especially. It is all true. You know, Doug, there's a rumor that Sarah is actually a regular listener of Starkville. Sarah, do you want to confirm or deny that rumor? I definitely want to confirm. I will admit that during the season, sometimes podcasts, I get a little bit behind, but then I'll go back and listen to stuff and I'll be listening to a podcast from August, like, you know, in October and that's okay. So I can't say that my uh, consumption is normal, but it is absolutely on my queue. I only have a couple of podcasts on there. They're all baseball podcasts. And you guys are, of course, I mean, the moment you guys tweeted out about this. It was like I went to go add it to my Overcast app. So, you know, absolutely. Awesome. awesome. Well, we are honored by that. And uh, Sarah, we're, we're really excited to have you on for so many reasons. Uh, one is because we love you. You've helped both of us so much in our jobs. Two, because you're a star and you're an inspiration now to so many girls and young women who would love to work in baseball because you're showing them what is possible. Uh, and three, because one of our favorite things on this show is to talk about and laugh about the craziness 
of baseball. And I'll admit, like I have not met a lot of people in the world who love that about baseball as much as Doug and I do, but you <laughs> might love it more than either of us. So let's start there. How would you describe why you take so much joy in watching, writing about, talking about, and tweeting about baseball? I think the reason is just because you never know what's going to happen. And I know that that's true of all sports in certain ways, but to me, a lot of other sports, you, you know, they're timed, you know, that certain things will happen when the player is playing really well, he's absolutely going to do this, whatever it might be. But I mean, I'm, you know, watching the Red Sox and White Sox before I came on to talk to you guys and your mean Mercedes. Like we don't get a story like that in the NBA or the NFL. Sometimes you get good stories, but certainly not eight straight hits in your first you know, however many uh, first career starts, you just don't get that. And also hitting like a 480 foot home run. I mean, the guy who comes up from the G League does not do that in the NBA. And I think that that's a lot of it. But I also think that for me, the constancy of baseball, the fact that it's always there, the fact there's always a game to watch. I mean, from April through the end of October, there's always a game you can put on day like today. We get one at 11 a.m., which is great. I, I really like that. I think growing up, that's probably a lot of what drew me to it is just that it was always there. You didn't have to wait for Sunday. You didn't have to say, okay, they're not playing today, but they're playing tomorrow. I mean, the team was always playing. And if they weren't playing, there was another game that you could watch. And I, I love that about baseball. Yeah. I mean, football games are an event. Uh, so that's kind of what football is. Baseball is a friend. Yes. <laughs> because, yes. You know, it's a friend that's always there. Doug, Sarah and I could just talk the whole time here. Why don't, why, why don't you jump in with a question? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, well, it's first of all, it's great to see you here, talk to you, Sarah. I mean, you know, always appreciated everything that you did to make us really rethink baseball, not only just because it's the statistical anomalies maybe or the details, but the, the real joy behind it. Like, and, and so, you know, Jason and I, I read his column back when I was in college and I connected on just the laughing out loud of, of finding something that I love to play, but also love to digest off the field. So I want to read you this, uh, these, this insightful commentary that I seem to have dug up. So see if you know who wrote this. But baseball isn't about the pitches and the swings, hits and outs. Part of baseball's grounding as the best sport is that it provides the most non-game material. What do I mean by non-game material? I mean anything related to baseball that isn't distinctly a baseball game between two teams. Baseball is widely considered the intellectual sport and has generated a lot of literature as a result. Uh, oh my God. So you know who wrote that? <laughs> I do. It was me in college. Oh my God. <laughs> I forgot about that piece. I, I was the editor of uh, our school paper, the Chicago Maroon, the sports editor. And we did a series with a bunch of different people writing why their sport was the best sport. And I wrote the baseball one. And I can't say that I could have recited even part of that to you. I did not remember that at all. But I like how I said it then. Yeah. I, I agree with what I said. So uh, still all these years later. That that's so much of it. And I feel like that's part of the concept of it being a friend, like what Jason was just saying. I mean, those non-baseball elements that non-gameplay elements that become part of baseball. Yeah, I mean, and I know like for me, even playing 
like pre-professionally, I had Stratomatic baseball in the off season. So even the off season, we may not have quite the you know NFL trade combine type of draft thing, but there was always this other storyline that was happening. And if you didn't have it directly, you created it. You know? So I was always playing with my brother and in various basements with Stratomatic or different card games and computer games. So, um, so I, I guess I'm curious for you in the quote off season, how has that evolved for you over time? Well, <laughs> I laugh at the concept of the off season because I feel like, you know, with the exception of maybe the pandemic shutdown, which was obviously very different. I would say the last few years, I'm very unaware of the off season in certain ways. I mean, I'm aware of the fact that there isn't a game to watch at 7 p.m. or 1 p.m. and how upsetting that is. But there's always something to look into. You know, we have off-season moves. We have, you know, a player signing a huge deal and whatever else it might be. And sometimes it's just, hey, this guy did this last year. I wonder if I looked into that, you know, and looking into a streak that happened and not realizing the context at the time, but now having it. Uh, but I, I will say that, you know, I, I watch some other sports, but I'm still always thinking about baseball, even in the off-season. So off-season is a is a concept for some. One of my favorite things is during NFL playoff games, Sarah's tweeting about winter league. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, the Dominican league is on. Okay, great. <laughs> by, by the way, the Packers just scored. <laughs> now, speaking of those other storylines, one of the questions that I know people ask me all the time is, how do you think of this stuff? Or where do you find this stuff? Um, so I thought it would be fun for us to talk a little bit about some of our favorite useless, goofy notes of the year, Sarah, how we think of them and how we do find them. So I'll, I'll start. I'll give you an example. Uh, remember opening day, we all made a big deal of the Cody Bellinger thing, whatever that was. And he hits a ball over the fence. <laughs> then he passes Justin Turner on the bases. So whatever it was, it was not a homer, even yes. though the ball went over the fence. Okay, but now in that same weekend, the same series, Zach McKinstry finally hits the Dodgers' first home run of the season, but it's an inside-the-park homer. So this is where the voice in my head starts talking. I don't know why this happens, but first the voice says, so they hit a ball that went over the fence, and it wasn't a homer, but then they hit a ball that stayed in the park, and it was a homer. So I think... All right, well, I guess that can't ever have happened. But now the voice is still going on. It says, all right, how many teams have ever hit an inside-the-park homer for their first homer of the year? And how many of those teams just won the World Series? And how many of those teams led the league in homers the, the year before? So right, luckily, I'm allowed to pepper my friends at stats with these questions, and they'll answer them. I don't know. I feel sorry for them. But the next thing I know, I've written like a thousand words all because of this little voice in my head and it won't shut up. So Sarah, do you know this feeling and do you have an example of this happening to you? I love the way you said it because that sounds very familiar to me. But I think that's it. I mean, I think you need to be inquisitive. And for me, the root of all this is, you know, being at the dinner table with my parents and talking about a game and wondering things, you know, and we used to wonder these things in 2005, 2004, whenever it was, even before we had smartphones with us at the table and we could Google things or anything else. And I've realized like, a couple of years into my career that that's probably the root of this, even though I'm not sure that I was aware of that when I first became a researcher. So 
it's those lines of thinking of, okay, and then what about this? And what about that? And you keep going and keep going. So I'm very, very familiar with that. I mean, I think one for me that happened uh, the other day was when Pablo Sandoval hit another pinch hit home run. Three (laughs) pinch hit home runs this season. And I mean, Pablo Sandoval, who seemed like he probably wouldn't have a major league job in 2021 based on what happened over the last two years. And here he is. It was April 15th. He hits his third pinch hit home run. So already I'm thinking, okay, that's a lot of pinch hit home runs. I know that the pinch hit home run record for a season is fewer than 10. So he's probably close to halfway there. So I need to look into that. And the most pinch hit home runs in a season is seven by Craig Wilson in 2001 and Dave Hansen in 2000. I'm like, okay, that's cool. But it's also April 15th. They've literally played two weeks plus one day of baseball. So I had to go look about the most pinch hit home runs in a single month. And the answer was four. And it was Arubio Durazo in April in 2001. Because of course it is. And that's what's so much fun is we have so many records that the answer is Henry Aaron. The answer is Barry Bonds. The answer is, you know, Roger Clemens, whoever else it might be to get some pitching in there. But we also have so many records that are Craig Wilson, Dave Hansen, and Arubio Durazo. And that's what's so amazing. And I think that that kind of drives the questions further, too. Is, you know, I don't, I, and I would be interested what your answer is to this, Jason. But for me, I'm not sure if when I start looking into something, do I want it to be one person and it's Henry Aaron, or do I want it to be one person and it's Arubio Durazo? Because I think that both of those are really, really cool in vastly different ways. And that, that's what makes this so great, you know? Yeah, that's, that's so true. And I, like, I, hey, I'd give you an example of that. Uh, last week, Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the, like, the, thousand things he did last week that were amazing he scores a run by hustling into a triple and then tagging up and scoring on a pop-up to the second baseman so i think like how this has got to be really rare for anybody to score a run like this so i ask stats and they run a search and they come back to me and they say well it's actually happened 12 times since 1987 in fact it even happened the same day and um so, like, at first, I'm really disappointed because Wilmer Defoe also did it on the same day. <laughs> but now I start looking c- closer at this list, and I notice it had never happened twice in the same year before. But wait, it happened twice <laughs> in the same day, and one of the guys who did it is the most mesmerizing player in baseball, and the other guy is Wilmer Defoe. <laughs> okay, right? So, like, this is the fun of looking up these notes, am I right? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that sort of gets to, you know, to people who do ask, you know, how do you come up with this? Just back to that, like, you look at the date, you look at the year. I mean, like when I am looking at a note, I'm looking at every single possible element with whatever it is I'm looking up. When is the last time this happened? How recently did it happen? What is the frequency? When was the date? Sometimes you get something where the last time it happened, this happened on Sunday. The Mets won a game on a caught stealing at second base. The last time they won a game on a caught stealing was on yesterday's date, on April 18th in 2009. 2009 is not that long ago, but it was on the same date. So like there are just so many different pieces with any one sentence, note, whatever you want to say, that could be just so incredible, right? Even if it's not the name, even if it's not whatever else it is. So like what you're saying that it happened twice in one day had never happened in twice in a year. I mean, this is is baseball, right? I mean, this is what you say all the time. This is just- Baseball! Exactly. Well, yeah, all right, I got, okay, I got another one that's really cool, okay? This was literally the last note I looked up 
for my latest Weird and Wild column. Shane Bieber, I know he's one of your favorites, right? Shane Bieber pitched against the White Sox last week. Here's the game. Nine innings, three hits, no runs, 11 strikeouts, and he didn't get a complete game or a shutout out of of it because it was still nothing-nothing when he left the game. So I keep this daily book of stuff that interests me. I'd written a note to myself to look up how rare that was. And I never got to it. So now here it is. It's almost 11 o'clock at night. I still haven't done it, but I still need to know, you know, that thing. So I start to look it up. And now the voice in my head just out of nowhere says, wait, you're looking up the wrong note. He was also the winning pitcher in that game. Okay. Because the Indians scored in the top of the 10th. So now I'm looking up nine shut out innings, three hits or less, at least 11 strikeouts. And he's the winning pitcher, but he didn't get a shutout out of it. <laughs> okay? So I run this program on StatHead, on Baseball Reference. And how many names come back besides Bieber's? There's only one. Steve Stone is the oh name. So literally, as I'm typing that note on my keyboard at 11 o'clock at night, at night the voice in my head is yelling at me again, saying, Hey, wait a second. Steve Stone was at the Bieber game because <laughs> it was in Chicago and he broadcast the White Sox games. So here we have the only two guys who ever did this, did it almost 50 years apart, but they're at the game where it happens again. Like, how can that happen? You know how? Baseball. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's and Right. So this stuff, it gives me chills, both that it happened and how I came to figure that out. And this surreal experience of being all alone in my office, writing late at night, and uncovering such a cool note almost by accident. So, Sarah, I'll I'll ask you again. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. I mean, I love what you're saying about the just being all alone and finding that because this one wasn't belated for me. But when Bartolo Colon hit his home run, I I was still working for ESPN and I was actually out in LA researching the LA Sports Center for a week, um, filling in for somebody. And Bartolo Colon homers and my computer freezes and I'm sitting in this room with no windows all by myself, my face bright red, like I need to check if he is the oldest person, his first career home run. I think he is, I'm so sure all of this is happening and I'm just all by myself. And you know, nobody can corroborate that, but that's how it happened. And I feel like that happens with so many things, especially lately. I mean, last year, every single thing I looked up, I was just sitting basically right here where I am talking to you guys. And there's something so funny about that, too. It's so fun to be around people and kind of throwing questions back and forth, like in the BBTN clubhouse and all of our days kind of doing baseball tonight together in that sort of environment. But it's also really funny to be sitting there by yourself. Yeah, and I, yeah exactly. And I, now, I'm curious for, for both of you on this. The, the So you mentioned, like, let's give an example. You mentioned the second base tagging up, right? But over time, what has evolved is now we have all these shifting defenses. I mean, Manny Machado caught a ball in the right field corner last year, okay? <laughs> so we know this is bananas. So how have you found the new data, the new analytics, and and how the game has progressed to impact how you do this crazy research? Because now there's like all these new fields you almost have to go, and wins above replacement, and was he shifted? Has that made it harder, or have you kind of streamlined even more? Uh uh, I guess I, I should take this because I've been researching these goofy notes longer, right? So 
this is it's everything is easier to research now than it used to be. Uh, there's way more going on. Like there's a lot of stuff you have to factor in, but you can actually find it. Uh, like Tim Kirkshin and I, as Sarah knows, uh, you know, we keep our day by day books. Tim for like a hundred years pasted box scores in a notebook. I realized as soon as baseball reference was invented, I could stop doing that. But Tim kept going. Okay. So like, but we would really literally look up stuff by thumbing through the box score books. It was the only way to tell whether Ken Griffey Jr. was really 12 for his last 15, right? You had you could go through the box scores. That was the only way to do that. Um, now here's like, this is the worst example of all. Okay. I wrote about this in the, uh, the baseball prospectus annual a couple of years ago. Uh, every once in a while, Again, Tim and I laugh about this. We would have to take these trips through the encyclopedia. <laughs> this is what we would call it. We would take the trip. We'd start with 1876, and we would start going. We'd literally be thumbing through the book. Okay, so here's one. Um, Von Hayes was with the Phillies. I'm covering the Phillies. And he was a good player. And if I remember this, like, so one year he hits 18 homers. The next year, we're in September... He's got no homer, and he plays all the time. And I thought, this can't ever have happened, right? So I call up my friend Steve Hurt, and I said, Steve, could you look this up for me? And he said, you know, this would be pretty involved. It'd be a long program. We, we would have to charge you for it. So I said, all right, maybe the paper will pay for it. So I'm working at the Philadelphia Inquirer then. Uh, asked the Inquirer. They said, no, no, we're not paying for that. <laughs> like, it costs how much for one sentence? No, we're not doing that. So I called Steve back up and I said, Steve, like they, this is just out of their price range, so it's not going to happen. But I, so I said, I guess I can try to look this up myself, but I'm really afraid that if I look it up myself, like I might miss somebody. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, because we thought we were actually going to do it. We started running the program. So if you look it up by hand, call me back up. I'll tell you if you got it right or not. Wow. <laughs> so, all, right. all right. But now I've got to go through 1876 <laughs> to whenever the heck this was. So this is what I do. Like as I'm watching games at night, I would sit there with the encyclopedia in front of me and I'd go through like 25 years one night. I go for 30 years the next oh, night. I look I look for everybody that hit 18 homers and then look at how he did the next year or everybody that hit zero homers or how he did the previous year. This is how I would have to do it. Um, so I go through the entire encyclopedia. It takes me a week. I call Steve back up and I said, I, I, I couldn't find anybody. That can't be right. I must have missed somebody. He said, no, you're right. <laughs> okay, so like, this is how it used to oh work. Gosh. Right now, Sarah, we can now find this in like 30 seconds. Yeah. Right? I Am mean, I right? I mean, it's even more incredible to me. You know, I mean, Doug was talking about reading, you know, stuff you wrote when he was in college. And I was certainly reading stuff you wrote when I was very young as well. And I don't even know how you did it then. I mean, I'm talking about the 2000s, <laughs> let alone yeah, much further back hard. than that. I mean, now we can do these things so easily and we're so indebted to Baseball Reference and Stats Inc. and Elias and, you know, I mean, everywhere that has these databases that we can basically just go through on our own. I mean, the program of Excel is incredible. Like the stuff <laughs> that I can even do there. I mean, I don't know. 
I just don't know how you even process these things without a computer. <laughs> so I, I mean, I talk right. about that a lot with, even when I was in ESPN stats and info, I mean, that department is, I think, I think the department is now more than 10 years old, but the concept has been there since the early nineties. You think of Chris Belica and, oh, you know, a couple I mean, I was, others. I got there 20 years ago and it was there then. Yeah. Okay, so maybe it's even more. I think it's the name that changed. We, we celebrated. Yeah, that's right. Once. That's right, what right, it was. Right. But regardless, the fact that they've been doing that since the 90s, I mean, I don't even know how. I mean, I know media guys. <laughs> I, I know how, but I can't even imagine. You think about the quantity yeah. of notes that we put out there now and what it must have been in like 1993. Sarah, I'm not sure if I ever told you this. My mom used to tell me all the time that I should write a book and call it I never saw that before. Yeah. I never did write the book. Yes, but like it, it, you know, it sounds like the kind of thing that your mom would probably tell you. Is that true? Yes, I, I think so. My mother is a big, big lover of baseball. And I think that she also has that understanding and appreciation of these things, even if she isn't necessarily looking all of these things up, you know, the way that we are. <laughs> all right. Well, you know what I think we should do now? I think we should bring in Sarah's mom. So Sarah, why don't you introduce your mom and tell us all a little bit about her? Thank you so much. This is my mother. She is a huge baseball fan. She knows who Doug Glanville and Jason Stark are. Of course, she has been a baseball fan her entire life. You know, my grandfather, her father was a big big Giants fan. The family actually moved to the Bay Area in 1958 until I was about 10 years old. I believed what he had told me, which was that they moved from New York to the Bay Area because the Giants moved <laughs> from New York to Bay Area. It turns out it wasn't true, but I, I did believe that. And she is also an infectious disease doctor, and I'm very proud of her always, but especially over the last year for everything she's been doing with the pandemic and everything else. But we're here to talk about baseball, which she loves. Big, big Giants fan and, uh, you know, one of my two greatest supporters with my my parents. Dr. Lizan Porosky. Lizan, welcome to Starkville. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you, you have an amazing daughter. Uh, I mean, Sarah touched on this, but let's start with where did your love of baseball come from? And what was the first time you realized that Sarah shared that love of baseball? Oh, wow. Great question. Well, firstly, in the words of a great person, thanks for having me on. Um, <laughs> um, so my love of baseball uh, clearly came from my uh, relationship with my father. Um, I was extremely close to my father. And actually, everything good about me probably came from my father little bit my mother. Anyway, uh, I grew up without TV. I told you I was different. So I grew up in um, Northern California, in what's now Silicon Valley, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And um, my father loved baseball. And most of the games were day games then. And we would like sit in the backyard and we would listen to Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. And, you know, to me, this was like the greatest life on earth. We listened to the Giants. They were you know, decent then. We're coming up to 1962. Um, and um, that's where I developed my love of baseball. It was my bond with my father, um, not just baseball, all sports, but baseball in particular. And I would devour the sports section, you know, in the paper the next morning. And um, my sister uh, loved the Beatles and I loved the Giants. And we had a deal where any sort of thing about the Beatles would go to her and anything about Willie Mays would come to me. 
<laughs> Tremendous. All right, what was the first time that you realized that Sarah was hooked? She shared this love of baseball. Um, you know, I, I, I am not completely sure. I mean, she part of it may have been because, again, with being different, um, Sarah only watched sports on television. Um, I sort of wanted to have like a no TV household. And um, my husband used to say, well, you know, how are you going to keep her away from it? Because, you know, we have a TV in every room because we're watching sports all the time. And <laughs> I said, OK, so she'll watch sports. And Sarah really grew up, grew up on, you know, watching sports on TV. And, and we could tell she was interested in it. But it's actually my husband who, who tells the story of watching a game with her one night and her turning to him and saying, Daddy, did you see that fastball? And uh, I don't know if you were then, Sarah, but that's the date that at least uh, uh, her dad um, did, puts it to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, well, I remember the, uh, the moment in my professional career when my mom completely surpassed me in, in Major League Baseball knowledge. Uh -huh. <laughs> and this is actually in the middle of my career, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I came home over, over a break and she rattled all this stuff about the Yankees and Bernie Williams and trade possibilities. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in the National League right now. <laughs> you know? So so I'm, I'm curious, though. The It was always stressful for my mom to kind of watch my career and mm. watch this love affair. Mm. I'm curious if you took time to prepare Sarah for the sort of heartbreak sometimes that comes with baseball, knowing that it, it's such a humbling game. Yeah, well, um, Sarah has um, already, um, I would say, lived through through a few eras of um, of that aspect of baseball. She was a very, very rabid fan. Um, as a child and, and as she began to um, learn more about it. But I will say that one of Sarah's um, incredible um, characteristics is that she has unbelievable equanimity. And what I have seen happen to her as she's become a professional is that she's really internalized that. And the way that it comes out is that she absolutely loves the game. And so a lot of the things that um, had gotten to her in the past, I think really don't affect her in the same way. And she really sees the human story that's there. And as a scientist, I can, I can tell you that one of the very unusual <laughs> things about her is that while she gets all the data and she's incredibly rigorous, she is somehow able to translate that um, on a very human level and to um, be able to kind of um, inform others that way. And so in answer to your question, um, I, I think that she's really um, very even keeled now about baseball. And I think that she sees things that go wrong as part of human error. And she sees things that go right as the incredible triumph of humanity sometimes. And um, I've really seen a transformation in her um, that has occurred. And I'm glad that it has, because I will say that in her earlier years, when things would sort of go awry, um, it was sometimes hard to console her over a short period of time. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, this is just what happens to yeah. you when you start working yeah. in the business. Like my my kids always are saying, "Dad, you're no fun to go to a game with, right? You never cheer. You want to high five, like yeah. all this stuff." I just, yeah. I'm just like I'm in. I love the game. I'm into it at a different level than they are. And and you know, Lizanne, I've heard Sarah talk about how you, when you were a kid, you wanted to do play by play for the Giants when you grew up. Is that a true story? That is an absolute true story. Um, you know, things were a little different when when I was growing up. Like we weren't under the same pressure to, you know, have a career and also being female and, you know, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, things were different. But as I said, I had this incredible bond with my father over listening to Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. And I just thought it would be the most amazing thing in the world to call baseball games. I mean, listening to baseball just gave me so much pleasure. And I thought, wow, you know, that would be a great thing to do. Now, of course, there was no female anywhere um, doing anything like that. And it wasn't really realistic. It was more of a dream. Um, and so I, I am very, very happy to see that um, Sarah's passion uh, for baseball has, um, that there have been opportunities for her. Um, you know, I have no idea what I would have done, but I will say that one of my crowning moments was uh, my mother was visiting New York City, uh, oh, many, many years ago, and she had an attack of, um, of uh, labyrinthitis in the middle of the night. And I went to an all night pharmacy and I got, you know, something for her. And I was, they had WFAN, uh, you know, on the radio, sort of all sports talk. And there was a quiz question to which the answer was, Russ Hodges and her <laughs> cell phones or anything. And I'm sitting in the back of this cab and I'm thinking, you know, this is it. Like, here I am. I know I am the only person in New York City, I am sure, who knows the answer to this question at this time. And I can't even convey my knowledge. So there you have it. <laughs> that, that, well, that, well, that's great. So I'd like to hear both of you talk about this aspect. Right? You, I mean, you, you dreamed of being Russ Hodges. <laughs> That wasn't a dream that could possibly have come true then. But then Sarah began to dream of a life working in baseball. I'm curious, Sarah, about what your mom told you. And Lizanne, what do you remember about that? Yeah, I mean, I it was just never presented to me as anything that wasn't possible. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that that Russ Hodges story, I mean, I've learned of that and she's mentioned that to me within the last few years, but I don't think that 10 or 15 year old Sarah even knew that. I mean, maybe I did on some sort of underlying level because I knew how much we both loved the game, but I didn't actually remember that she wanted to grow up and be an announcer. But, you know, in our household, as, as my mother was saying, it was all sports all the time. And I always say that, you know, my father is a big baseball fan too, and I want to give him all of the credit for that. But, you know, most girls in America grow up with a father who's a baseball fan or a sports fan, but not all of them grow up with a mother who also is. And so for me, just seeing my mother being so invested in these games, not just baseball, baseball being part of it, but we couldn't drink out of the 49ers cups on Sundays or they would lose. I mean, <laughs> you name it, it was happening superstition-wise, fan-wise, everything else. It just never told me that this wasn't something that women or girls should be interested in. So I, I think that it was just that, you know, overlying or underlying positivity that, Sure. Yeah, you're interested in this. Do this. You know what you're talking about. And I'm so grateful for that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, as usual, I think Sarah put it beautifully. Um, you know, my father uh, used to always say to me that if you have a passion for something, you have a gift for life. And I really think that that describes Sarah's involvement in, in baseball and her drive to uh, embrace it as a profession. And um, when you see that in a child and when you see how happy it makes them, especially since so many people are not happy and struggle so much, um, you can't do anything but support it. And, you know, the thing about Sarah is that she has an amazing ability to connect things. And I, I think if, and if I had any worry at all, it would be that it would be all sports all the time and that she wouldn't know about the rest of the world and she wouldn't care, um, you know, about other things and people. And it's so untrue. Um, you know, her love and investment in what she does has just made her an incredible citizen of the planet and um, a really incredible person. And it's made her even better. And, you know, I, I think, you know, she knows how close I was to my father. And, you know, when I see her, um, you know, I just see that passion and it doing so much good and it making so many people happy that how could I, you know, not endorse that. Although I do wonder sometimes what somebody with Sarah's hard drive could do with, you know, <laughs> seeing the variants out there or, um, you know, one of the other big questions that's facing us scientifically, but that's okay. There are other people that can do that. Uh, you, you know that your daughter sometimes tweets your text oh, she's on Twitter. baseball, she's right? on Twitter. Just making sure that's okay. <laughs> I'm a I'm a Twitter troll. I, no, I not troll. <laughs> I'm not a troll in like the bad sense. No. But I'm in the sense that I'm that I watch, right? But I don't she's never put tweeted. anything out. She's never I don't I don't tweet myself, but I watch. Um <laughs> but I must say that I well Sarah another very great characteristic of Sarah is that she's incredibly appropriate um, so that she would never tweet some of my actual comments. But uh, <laughs> I, I have, and she has become more uh, visible, shall I say, I, I have curtailed some of my Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Like what I know one of my favorites is no matter how fast you run, right. you can't escape a bad bullpen. That's right. the family expression, is it? Right. Yeah, yeah. No matter how fast you run, yes, you cannot run from a bad bullpen. There are, there are some others. There have That's been true. some interesting uses of a pox on their house, but I won't tell you exactly <laughs> which ones right. they now, were. <laughs> There, there was also one uh, about a perfect game. Which one of you wants to explain that one? Oh, the perfect game and uh, Gampa's comment. Is that what I, the one that you're talking about? So, yes, yes. Uh, my father, <clears throat> again. Uh, so we were at David Cohn's uh, perfect game, which was um, actually <clears throat> marked by a couple of rain delays. And my husband being on call for nephrology at NYU and spending time in the press box trying to answer calls because it was like free cell phone for us. Um, and I called my father right after the game and I said, oh, daddy, you know, we went we went to this game and it was a perfect game. And he goes, oh, yeah, baseball is so great. It's so perfect. It's so wonderful. And I said, no, it was an actual perfect game. <laughs> And it was just, it was really one of the most amazing moments. And it was fairly close to when he became 
ill. And, and I, I really so remember that that conversation with him just had that combination of that, you know, innocence and joy, like he was so happy that his daughter and his granddaughter had had such an amazing day. And then that it was such a feat like that. Um, so it was incredibly special. But Sarah, I thought that did you share the uh, piece about the Ray Sadecki bat? You know how they used to be bat day? And I don't know why they would have had like a pitcher's bat. Maybe they had like leftover. But <laughs> I, you know, to me, to me, the Ray Sadecki bat is like one of my best childhood memories. Yeah, well, th- th- this was awesome. Uh, I I love it when we have two such brilliant women who just take over the show. Right. <laughs> but but I also know you have way more important things to do than talk to us. So, Lizan, thank you so much for coming to visit us here in Starkville. Oh, thank like, you for thank having you. me. It was an absolute honor, honor. And thank you for having Sarah. And enjoy the week, everyone. You too. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. You know, as your mom mentioned, um, she wanted to be Russ Hodges, and it wasn't an option for her in her day. But now, Sarah, as you look around at Kim Ng and women on coaching staffs and Melanie Newman calling Orioles games and all the incredibly talented women who are now covering baseball, quite a few at The Athletic, and of course there's you, how much has the world changed for girls and young women who want to work in our favorite sport? I think it's changed, you know, drastically, especially over, it seems like the last 10 years or so. I mean, I know there's still a lot more work to be done, and I'm certainly not saying that we are where we should be at all, you know, in sports in general and certainly in baseball. But, you know, the thing that always stands out to me is just the concept of representation. I mean, the names that you just listed off kind of all doing different types of jobs. I think that that's really important. I mean, you know, Kim Ang absolutely should have been hired much sooner than when she was, but she is there now. And young girls can look up and see that they could be a general manager. And of course, they could have been a year ago as well or five years ago. But when you can see it, you can be it. And people say that and it maybe it sounds a little bit corny, but I really think that it does matter. And I think that that really helps with just imagining what could be possible. And I actually got the chance to interview Susan Waldman right before the season for a Women's History Month conversation, which was an absolute honor. I mean, I, I was blown away when they asked me to do that. And something that she said that really stood out to me with that conversation of representation was, you know, she recalled calling a WNBA game in the first year of its existence and seeing a little girl go up to a player and ask for an autograph. And she said, you know, I don't know what that little girl is doing now, but I'm sure her life is better for having seen that player. And I think that's an important part. It's not just about seeing women do these things and thinking, oh, I can be a GM. I can be you know, an announcer, whatever else it might be. But I think that for anybody who's part of a, you know, smaller group, minority group, whatever you want to say, just seeing people do these things makes you better for whatever it is you want to do. You know, whether it's being an astronaut, I think that was Susan's example, or a scientist, whatever else it might be. I just think that seeing a broader spectrum of women doing things, of people in these marginalized groups doing things, gets you closer to doing whatever it is you want to do. Okay, well, to quote someone I know, more please. Okay, let's, yeah. well, <laughs> let's if, have more please. And, and by the way, yeah. and sorry, and, I, and I'd make the case that it makes the game better. You know, it just makes yeah. the game better. And someone once wrote this, I want more women writers because I want to be a real non-maroon, 
University of Chicago nickname, <laughs> seven days a week sports writer one day, which you've become, Sarah. And I want others to have this dream too. So you've done that and everybody's dreaming bigger because of it. So congratulations. And I know you continue to do great, great work. Thank you both so much. You're going to make me cry. Susan Waldman almost made me cry. I know you're going to make me cry. Yeah, we aim for weeping. We do. (laughs) I'm a big part of baseball, regardless of what the movie says. I'm just going to say that right now. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Well, you know, this is the point where normally we would let Sarah escape back into the real world and we would move along to listener trivia, but... This week, we're doing something a little different with our world-famous trivia segment. Uh, Instead of turning this over to a listener, we thought, wait a minute, we've got one of the great baseball trivia minds (laughs) on the planet already hanging out with us in Starkville. Why don't we just let her ask the trivia question? So that's how it's going to work this week. Sarah is going to be the one proving that there's no trivia question we can't get wrong especially now that the trivia police have shut down doug's devious cheating scheme we're not going to go into that again (laughs) but we're not we're in our third week of playing by the actual rules it's not going that good (laughs) but but anyway uh sarah it's time for a moment i know you've been waiting for time for you to ask this week's trivia question I will say of everything with thinking about this, when you reached out to me, hey, can you join us? I was already honored. And then could I do the trivia question? (laughs) This was the part I stressed about all weekend. So I'm just going to say that in a good way. There is good stress in baseball. So my question for you two is, the oldest player to lead the majors in home runs uh, was not 40 years old. No player has led the majors in home runs in a season where he was at least 40 years old on the last day of the season. I looked into this last year because Nelson Cruz was in the running at various points. August 30th, he was tied for the lead. So the oldest player to lead the majors in home runs was 38 years old at the mm. end of that season. Mm. Who is it? Okay. the Basically, Ooh. the oldest player ever player. to lead the league in homers did it at age 38. And mm-hmm. uh, all right, I love this question. <laughs> like Sarah, I have looked up all kinds of notes, thanks to Nelson Cruz, about guys who've hit the most homers after age 30, after age 35, yeah. yada, yada, yada. I so like I, our chances. Like I, have, I like it. Right. I have the good names, I think, in my head, but we need to work through them. So, like, I first thought Barry Bonds, 
But Barry was not 38 when he hit those 73 homers. I'm pretty sure he never led the league after that. Then my next thought was Hank Aaron. He was still having those huge years through age 39. I was, I was, Sarah, I was all set to guess Hank Aaron. And then I thought, too obvious. <laughs> so then I was working through, like, I know how, you know, I do these trivia questions. I know how, how we think here. Yeah. Uh, I started working through the other names, Ortiz and Killebrew and Reggie Jackson. And then I had a name that just hit me out of the blue. Daryl Evans is the answer to a couple of questions like this. Like, Doug, you remember Daryl Evans? Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. So, like, I, I, I feel like I should just play a hunch and guess him. But you're part of this now, uh, so you, you tell me what you've got. So, yeah, my, my just a little background, Sarah. I would then guess and we'd have two answers, and then one of them would, could be right, since we're considered Starkville, mm-hmm. one brain. But that was <laughs> that was mixed. Uh, I had the s- same list. I thought about Ted Williams and Stan Musial, which are always good answers. Even Billy Williams was really good as he got older, but I don't know, about 38. I know I've been, you know, it's always some off year, like, is there like a split? Who what? Who uh, who was the home run leader in the split season? Like I was trying to, right? I think eighty one or something. You that know, was a weird year. That was a weird year. You know, some. Uh, but anyway, Evans could have actually fit in that. So I don't have a better answer. I mean, I thought Frank Robinson or something, but I really don't have a better answer. So I'll, I'll just stick to since you've done the research more than I have. <laughs> I, 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 I did no there. research. I just was thinking, uh, like. All right, like so it. we're going to go with Daryl Evans. I like it's just it. a hunch. I like it. 40 home runs. I, I don't know. All right, Sarah, any chance that this is Daryl Evans? It is. You no way. It. No way. You, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Whoa. This is incredible. I will need a tougher question next time. Is <laughs> yeah. what I have no, here. like that was just, I don't know that where that great, came from. Great job. Like, wow. like, 1985, but, he was 38 at the end of the year. He hit 40 home runs. 40. Like the I remember he the 40, the yeah. 41. Oh, right, he was the oldest dollars. player ever to hit 40 or something, right? Something he was, like yeah, he was the oldest to hit 30, and then he hit 10 more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, uh, so, Doug. We actually got a Sarah Lang's question uh, right. She was easy. She went easy on us, though, so that's okay. So we'll bring was, her back. I, for... I, don't, I don't really know. I have no idea how I got this. But uh, I, I do know that we've now gotten two in a row, Dynasty. somehow or other, Dynasty. without Dynasty. any cheating to see what – so so lesson to Doug Glanville, crime does not pay. Okay. We're, we're two and two this year now, Sarah. That's pretty impressive. Uh, Good start to the season. All right. Well, if you listen regularly, you know whether we get the question right or wrong, we still bring in the mayor to play some cool audio clip that has something to do with our (laughs) trivia question. So let's bring in Mayor Tim. Tim, what do you got for us today? All right. You're going to have to bear with me a little bit on this one today because it's two parts, Jason. Um, I got stuck in the rabbit hole of listening to old audio of Daryl Evans. So we're going with two. The first one is from that 1985 season, July 2nd. It was just his 16th of the year, but a big one in Baltimore. Here's a drive hit deep, way back in right center. Well hit and gone. A home run. A grand slam home run for Daryl Evans. All right, so that was from 1985, but then two years later, and Sarah mentioned it, he hit 40 homers. He was the first 40-year-old to hit 30 homers that year as well. Here's number 30. Allen Trammell at first, one out, and here's the pitch. He got it. Long ways. It is way up in the air. It is upper deck. A two-run homer. Darrell Evans, 
30th home run of the year. They're giving him a standing ovation, and he comes out to acknowledge the cheer as he becomes the first 40-year-old player in Major League history to hit 30 home runs in a season. That was awesome. That was like the greatest Daryl Evans highlight <laughs> montage ever. <laughs> you know, he, he had a fa- totally fake the Warren Spahn highlight montage last week, Sarah. So it's way better. <laughs> so I went from completely failing to coming up with two great clips to make up for it this yeah. week. Yeah, you did. Great work. Great uh, all right. Well, Sarah, we love the trivia question and we loved your visit. Please keep up the fantastic wow. work. Don't be a stranger. Thanks for joining us here on Starkville. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a wonderful way to start the week. I'm so, so grateful. Well, for Thank us you, too. Sarah. Thank Great you. seeing you. Okay, one more thing before we go here, Doug. Uh, over the weekend, you know, an amazing thing happened. Uh, the Braves called up a guy named Sean Kazmar Jr. And he got into the game on Saturday. And that meant that he appeared in a major league game for the first time since September 23rd, 2008. <laughs> that was a long time ago. It's uh, 12 and a half years ago. Uh, and all right, the last player with a longer gap between games in the major leagues was a guy I never heard of, Ralph Weingartner. Uh, 13 years and 14 days. He was a pitcher for the 1936 Indians and then the 1949 Browns. Wow. So, like, just... Put that aside. Uh, we were trying to figure out a way to put in perspective how long ago it was that Sean Kazmar last played a game in the big leagues. Um, all right, he played over 1,100 games in the minor leagues. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Between the bats and the big leagues. Probably more than you played in your life. Uh, the Dodgers won over 1,000 games in between his big league at bats. How about that? Um all right, then here's another thing. Uh, Sean Kazmar Jr. drafted in the fifth round of the 2004 draft, and that was so long ago, Doug. You were still playing then <laughs> in the big leagues. So there's that. And I looked at the first round of that draft. You know, here's what blew me away. All the really good players drafted in the first round that year had excellent careers, now retired. Uh, guys like oh <laughs> Gio Gonzalez, Neil Walker, uh, Phil Hughes, Homer Bailey, Billy Butler, Glenn Perkins. Like, there's a lot of them. They're all retired now, <laughs> and this guy is still going. All right, so Doug, Amazing. you're you're a you're a wise philosopher, baseball philosopher, life philosopher. Well, you tell me, what should we make of this? Oh. Well, the one thing that I've changed for me is how I look at baseball, which is part of what is so cool about its evolution in your life, is that now I see it through my kids' eyes, right, through as a father, as a husband. I mean, that is now my complete default positioning. And I, what's so baffling about this is I literally had four kids between his big league. <laughs> <laughs> I had four kids. I mean, and one is like 12, you know, he's like playing ball himself. It's really crazy. And so I think about just the dream of having children. And, and I remember the one thing I was weighing was I have this little bat rack in my in the nursery that I painted, which is a rare feat, by the way. 
And I was debating <laughs> on what bat I should get and whose autograph bat. And I waited and I waited. I want to get players who were, you know, not PED and all that. So I um, I texted Derek Jeter. I said, hey, man, I you know I want you to assign this to my son. He's not even born yet, but it would be really cool. And he overnighted it from spring training. I was obviously retired. Wow. So so that bat is still, still with us. So that's how long ago it was. And so much has, has changed. So I kind of appreciate for this man's perseverance first of all but as an announcer we always have that same feeling i'm sure you've had it in covering it you know i was playing and then all of a sudden you know against you know prince field you know cecil fielder and then prince fielder's playing and then prince fielder retired that stuff blows your mind i mean the whole toronto blue jays lineup just gives me heart palpitation so um yeah so i mean it's uh you know it's quite a crowd first of all i don't know how he was able to do that right that's a that takes a lot of dedication. And you think about what we've been just talking about earlier, about how the game's evolved and shifted. Well, 08 and 2021, I mean, those are those are different planets in Major League Baseball. You're, the way you approach the game as a player is different. So, uh, hey, kudos, man. <laughs> kudos. You know, I've thought for a long time about how we can measure our lives through baseball. And, uh, Doug, you just expressed that so eloquently because there are, like, there are actual years of real life and then there are baseball years and baseball can help us put into perspective the passing of the actual years you know in real life the days and the months and the years they can just blend together in a way that's almost imperceptible but baseball there are winners and losers and seasons and milestones and awards that help us mark the years and then there are people like this. So thanks to Sean Kazmar Jr. for putting our lives in perspective while he was bringing his own life's journey full circle. All right, that's going to do it for another memorable edition of Starkville. You can find us every Tuesday in our new home as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Every Monday, it'll be Ken Rosenthal's mailbag. Thursday, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Friday, it's Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. All these shows are so much fun. Uh, and we sneak in there on Tuesdays. Uh, also remember, the Athletic Baseball Show is available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you go for your podcast entertainment. And of course... You can still find us ad-free, no less, at the Athletic app. We would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and feel free to give us one of those five-star ratings if you like what you hear. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the incredible writing on our site, there is no better sports writing being done anywhere than in the Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, we're still offering an incredible special. If you go to theathletic.com slash baseball show, you can subscribe for just $3.99 a month. So check us out. You'll be happy you did. Also remember that you too can be part of this podcast. Next week, we'll go back to inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here on Starkville and prove once again, there is almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you just need to submit a great trivia question. You can email it to us at starkville at theathletic.com 
or feel free to fire those questions at us on Twitter. To find Doug Glanville, how would we do that? <laughs> Just hit me at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Or you can tweet him at me, at Jason S-T, that's J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember to hashtag the questions, hashtag StarkvilleQS. So Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Sarah Langs and her mom for visiting. And for the great trivia question, thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Doug and I will see you next week on Starkville. Starkville.